Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. Good evening, everybody. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Donald Trump presidency. And it's day 96, so that means this is my last program in this slot and our 100-day series will end all together on Thursday night. For my last Indivisible, we'll do one last time what we've been doing for these 14 weeks. Check in on how the Trump administration is breaking with American norms, for better or worse, and we'll try to create a space where we can get out of our bubbles and have some dialogues across political lines. Later this hour, David Isay from StoryCorps will help facilitate some open conversations from across the polarizing divide where people will listen to each other as well as talk and will tell you how you can sign up for a StoryCorps encounter with your political opposite, a loved one, or a stranger even after Indivisible goes off the air at the end of this week. But first, let's get to those norms. Back with us for the final week of Indivisible is a guest we had in week one when Donald Trump had only been president for four days. Fareed Zakaria, Washington Post columnist and host of Fareed Zakaria GPS, Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern time on CNN. He has written books, including The Future of Freedom, Illiberal Democracy at Home and Abroad. Let's discuss how democracy at home is doing after 96 days of Donald Trump. Fareed, thanks so much for starting off this series and helping us to close it out. Welcome back to Indivisible. Always a pleasure, Brian. And listeners, on Day 96, you help us wrap up this 100-day series, too, by telling us one thing that you think is most different about America or the world today for Trump having been in office. Tell our screener if you did vote for Trump or didn't vote for Trump, and then one thing, just one thing from each of you, that you think is most different as we approach the end of the symbolic first 100 days. 844-745-TALK. 844-745-8255. We'll save some lines for people who did vote for Trump and some lines for people who didn't. In either case, tell us one thing that you think is the most different after 96 days. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Fareed, one thing about these 96 days, they have been a fire hose of news so much every day. It's hard even for full-time journalists like us to keep up. So let me cite some news of today. Three pretty notable developments just this afternoon that a lot of listeners might not have even heard yet. And get your quick takes. A judge blocked Trump's attempt to cut off federal funds to so-called sanctuary cities. Jason Chaffetz, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, said Michael Flynn, Trump's original national security advisor, may have broken the law by failing to disclose that he was a paid agent of a foreign country. And for all of Trump's talk about Mexico and China eating our lunch on trade, 
Trump imposed his first tariff today, and it's on lumber coming in from Canada, with the possibility of dairy tariffs on Canada coming next. What do you make of this tariff on a NAFTA country? Is it something any president might have done, or is this a sign of a new economic nationalism and thereby a new norm? Uh, it's certainly a new nationalism, a new na- economic nationalism. It's not entirely unprecedented. Uh, Ronald Reagan was very tough with the with the uh, the Japanese, and there were many uh, efforts to do something on that. E- the European Union and the, the United States have had trade disputes over time. What was odd about this uh, was, from the Canadian perspective, they seem to have gotten no uh, advance notice of this. Uh, usually, when you have an ally like this, there's a procedure you go through. You don't publicly announce sanctions on a country like China. China without giving them a heads up. Uh, so it, it, it is part of, frankly, the kind of low-level incompetence that has characterized the Trump administration from day one. They, they don't really seem to be able to get, be able to get their ducks in a row. Um, on the other news, though, I think it, it gets to a theme we talked about on that first day, Brian, which is, uh, I was saying, if, as you recall, I think that there are reasons to be worried uh, about the erosion of democratic norms, because you, 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 were, you were seeing the political system unable to uh, offer checks and balances. The Republican Party had essentially capitulated to Trump, and he was attacking the two sources of checks and balances to him, which were the press and courts. Well, here what you're seeing is, you know, Chaffetz, a Republican, is uh, finally acknowledging what was, you know, pretty clear, that there was something fishy about Michael Flynn and his connections to the Russians. And another another judge pointing out that Trump cannot unilaterally uh, uh, change policy in the way that he wants. So the system is working not maybe as well as we would have wanted it to, but you have seen over this, this, uh, these 96 days, courts, press, uh, and the occasional Republican, uh, the occasional congressman, uh, the occasional governor standing up to Donald Trump uh, when he did things that were a violation of American norms. So, uh, as you recall, I, I was not as I, I was pretty confident that Trump was uh, illiberal and was going to try to erode these norms. But I was also confident that the American system uh, would fight back, and it is. Um, before the election, you called Trump a cancer on democracy. When you were here on week one, we talked about a lot of, uh, we talked a lot about authoritarianism. Uh, that's what you're just, just referencing, I know. Trump came in, and let's think back to those earliest days. Trump came in with his dark American carnage inaugural address. New York Magazine later reported that George W. Bush, who was at that speech, left calling it weird stuff, his real S-word deleted. There was some violence in the streets in Washington, D.C. on day one. Sean Spicer was refusing to take questions from the press on day one. The resistance began with the worldwide women's marches on day two. Trump issued his first travel ban on day six. And with his open admiration of strongmen like Putin and Erdogan, We didn't even know if he would obey the court injunction against it, but he did. And this is a low bar, but amplifying what you said a minute ago, at least we can say court orders are being obeyed and the National Press Corps is as feisty as ever in its watchdog role, yes? Exactly. And I think I still worry on the the role of the press. It is still unprecedented for a president of the United States to just relentlessly attack the independent media, to have called in uh, the, the heads of the major networks uh, and, to, and to essentially berate them for uh, for uh, what he regarded as unflattering coverage of him. And that is something you can imagine Erdogan doing. It's something you can imagine Putin doing. 
Richard Nixon in his darkest day never did something like that. So there is still, I think, this kind of assault on the media that, uh, you know, frankly, in, in, long, in a long-term sense, I think is, is destructive of democracy. But for the most part, yeah, the system has, uh, has proved to be quite resilient. Uh, and I, I hope, uh, particularly if uh, you see his poll numbers begin to drop among Republicans, you might see the Republican Party get some spine. You're seeing some of it. Uh, John McCain has been, uh, in many ways, a profile and courage on many of the issues, particularly Russia. I think if we see more of that, um, you begin to see, a, a, frankly, a healthy political system. And, and I want to be clear, this is not, a, this is not a, an anti-Trump point. This is a pro-democracy point. No single leader, the whole point of the American Constitution, the whole point of the Founding Fathers, the whole point of our kind of liberal democracy is no leader should have the kind of untrammeled authority that would allow him us to even imagine that he might uh, refuse to accept the court order, uh, intimidate the, the, the media, exactly. bully bureaucrats into doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Barb in St. Louis, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Barb. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. Trump voter or not Trump voter? Not. And what's the one thing you would say is the most different after 96 days? The one thing for me personally that's the most different is that every day of the last 96, I have worked hard to have an open mind about Trump. I've wanted him to uh, show us success. I wanted him to prove all the doubters wrong, even though I didn't vote for him. Um, you know, I, because we need a good president. We need somebody who's going to lead the world and lead us. So the one thing that's the most different is that you're finding new reservoirs of open-mindedness <laughs> to even give him a chance? Yeah, but I didn't expect to have to work so hard to be open-minded. And I, I hoped in these 96 days that I'd find more positive things than I have. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to another caller from St. Louis. Here's Joe. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you? Good. So what's the one thing that's most different, as you see it, after 96 days? I, I, I really think that people are finally starting to recognize that government is too involved in their lives, and they're, they're really starting to push back against that. And the example that I gave your screener was that, um, I mean, the travel ban, people, people want to allow people to come here and work from other countries. They want to allow those people to have jobs here and come here and work hard and be, be the American dream. And when you have a ban that prevents people from doing that, you, you have a lot of pushback against that but from the American people. Joe, I'm going to leave it there, but thank you for that important point. And, and Farid, what's your reaction to the protest or resistance movement, the Women's March, the March for Science, the town hall turnouts? Remember the spontaneous outpouring to airports when the travel ban was first announced? Do you see these as signs of, of a robust democracy or something less than meets the eye, or what would you say? I think it's absolutely a sign of a robust democracy, as long as these things stay peaceful, as they have for the for the you know, vast majority of cases. But I want to go, uh, Brian, to the point that your first caller made, which is such a, v a good point about trying to be open to, to allowing Trump to succeed. I think this is a great challenge for all of us who opposed Donald Trump, and I very much opposed him, which is, you know, when he, when he does something that's – when he does the right thing, can we bring it? Can we summon up the resources of mind and spirit 
to admit it, to congratulate him. Do we, you know, do we want him to reverse himself on so many of these crazy, unworkable policies? So when he when he reverses himself on the travel ban or on NATO or on you know health health insurance, if he were to do it, um, would we be willing to congratulate him for? Would we or are we so committed? to hoping secretly that he fails, that we would be willing to drag the country down with him. And I think that's a very important division that uh, that uh, people on the left particularly have to think about. You can't want what's ba- bad for for Trump, even if that means it's also bad for America. I think that your first caller was exactly right. You have to want America to succeed, which means... You have to want that Trump will reverse himself on his idiotic, cruel, unworkable policies and uh, come and see sense. And in some cases, he has. And I, for example, pointed out that when he uh, when he did the serious strike, which was, by the way, upholding the deal that Obama made in 2013, uh, and when he talked about upholding a global norm, that was finally him breaking out of his America first cage. But I got criticized for it because there are a lot of people, I think, whose, whose view is if Trump does it, by definition, it must be bad. And I don't think we want to get into it. You know, that's almost like absorbing and reflecting his negativism, and you don't want to do that. Yeah, although by the same token, even if you supported the policy of the serious strike, the kinds of reversals that he's had that have brought him back into line with some pre-existing norms like that, like saying China is not a currency manipulator, like saying NATO is not obsolete. Uh, It kind of brings ridicule upon himself for either having taken the positions that he took originally in a mindless way or, you know, flipping in a too casual way when he sees something disturbing on cable television or whatever makes him flip. I think that's exactly right, Brian. It's almost, you know, I've called it a freak show. However, what's the alternative? Would you rather he maintain those policies? You know, know, we don't have a perfect option here. Given the choices, I would rather he, in whatever way, back away from some of these very cruel, unworkable, often ridiculous policies. Mia in Chicago, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Mia. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. So what's different? Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, what's the one thing that's most different in 96 days? Uh, For me, as a millennial and as a nurse who is married, or not married, uh, dating a teacher, um, I would say our sense of control on what's going on around us is the most different. Um, I had wanted Bernie Sanders to win... Um, I had believed that there would be real change in that. And when everything fell out and since it's fallen out in these 96 days, um, I look around and I look at what's happening um, with our fellow people and the hate that's being spread. And I just feel that we have no control and that my voice is not being heard. Mia, thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Now, we're going to clear some lines for people who did vote for Donald Trump. It's interesting. Trump voters, you know who you are, and you've been calling the show for 14 weeks. Uh, We've had no shortage of Trump voters calling to state your piece. Now we're asking for the one thing that's the most different in 96 days of Donald Trump, and we've just got one lonely Trump voter on the line. We're going to go to him, Mark in Columbus. But any other Trump voters out there? We've heard three already on the air. Uh, People who didn't vote for Trump, saying what feels the most different for them. 
How about what's the most different if you do support Donald Trump? Call 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. Some of you Trump detractors who are going to bump from our phones. It's not because we're censoring you. We're just trying to get some different points of view on here. Uh, So I apologize, but 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. Trump voters, what is the most different thing? After 96 days. Mark in Columbus, you're on Indivisible. Hey, Mark. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I can just say one thing. I'm actually the, uh, you guys used my voice for an ad, and I was the caller that called in about Syria a couple weeks ago, rather distraught about that, because I felt that as a Trump supporter, that was a great betrayal of the non-interventionist policy many of the Republican base thought we were going to get. I remember, now that you say it. And so what do you want to identify today as the most... There's a a general rule that Donald Trump has shattered among Republican politicians, and I hope people on the left that are well-meaning, they ought to be thankful for this, and that is the interventionist business wing of the Republican Party that was anti-trade union, they can never win a single election again. And people on both the right and the left ought to be very thankful for that, because there's, there's never going to be another Bush presidency because of, what Donald, because of the election of Donald Trump. He's and probably going to propose big tax cuts for the rich tomorrow morning. That is still he wants to placate, you know, across to the Freedom Caucus. I'm actually a little skeptical about that. I, uh, But, again, he's also gone to Wisconsin and pledged to protect the factories there by signing an executive order. Yes. I mean, that's something that when people associate the establishment wing of the Republican Party, they get this idea that they're all Wall Street. Mark, thank you very much. Freed, what do you think about that? Oh, I think Mark raises a very interesting and important point, which is um, one of the tensions I think we're watching here is, um, to my mind, uh, the degree to which Trump has really morphed uh, into a pretty conventional Republican with a little bit of trade protectionism. I think Mark is right that the Canada thing, I suppose, uh, you know, could be viewed in the way he says it. Uh, on the other hand, he promised that on day one he would he would label China a currency manipulator. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big enchilada in trade is China. Canada is, is, is small, is small potatoes. <laughs> right. I mean, if you're gonna, and if I have to jump nice, in because we're up against the break. We'll continue in a minute with Fareed Zakaria and your calls. Brian Lehrer on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Brian Lehrer with you and with Fareed Zakaria, Washington Post columnist and host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN. 
talking about American norms being challenged for better or worse in Trump's first 100 days. And we're taking your calls, Trump supporters and non-Trump supporters. What do you think is most different for better or worse? One thing that's the most different here on Day 96, 844-745-TALK. And now the Trump supporters have come flooding in. I wonder if maybe the people who are against Trump feel more passionately that things are different. I don't know. It's a too small a sample to be scientific. But Lynn in Atlanta, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Lynn. Hey, how are you? I uh, just wanted to say that uh, thing the first 96 days has shown us is that in spite of the, the words of the president um, making some, some, some fairly outrageous claims to the campaign, admittedly, that the real facts are is that, that solid, a, a solid reasoned attempt to repeal Obamacare is underway. A solid reasoned attempt at tax reforms underway. A solid Supreme Court justice and Justice Gorsuch has been appointed. And the facts are that it's less about the mouthpiece, be it President Obama or President Trump, and more about the conservative movement being in a position to, of leadership in Washington now. I think people realize that some of the promises of the campaign are less important, and it's really the the, the, the four or five thousand appointees that that are they're put in power by a president um, are going to do the right thing and make these kinds of wise decisions like Syria and otherwise. I think that's been a surprise for some people if you look closely over the first ninety six days. Is there's there's been a reasoned, measured approach that wasn't necessarily consistent with the tone struck the campaign but will be the reality of the next four years. It's interesting that you say that, because I think a lot of the country, at least that didn't vote for Trump, is reacting to him as anything but, you know, that the kinds of norms that have been shattered have so much to do with Trump's personality, that, like, all politicians spin and fudge, but Trump has no qualms about just making stuff up if it helps him stay on offense. Most politicians have personal interests that they need to watch out for, but Trump's company and his daughter's company benefit directly, and he just flaunts that or flouts it, whichever the right word is, Uh, uh, things like that. See, I think those are the shiny nickels. That, that capture people's attention. And I think those those are certainly newsworthy of the news. And in fact, many people who I think are not don't have a great understanding of how things really get done in politics tend to pay attention to. But the facts are is these things are really sideshows. And the fact is is you've got very capable people in the Defense Department. You have very capable people who are looking at measured, thoughtful approaches to trade deals, and and the the the, the overreach of the political left. It's going to do an end, and it's not going to be crazy Trump things that the, the left likes to talk about. It's going to be measured, thoughtful, studied um, conservatism that's going to be the fact. It's, it's not going to be talked about in the press necessarily, mm-hmm. but it will be the reality of how this administration governs. And I think that's why a lot of folks who were initially reluctant to Trump as a personality recognize that choosing thoughtful conservatism over you know, four more years of the political left was the right thing in spite of the bellicose remarks. And I think that's what we're seeing. Lynn, thank you very much. Fareed, we're not in the same room. I'm guessing that you're shaking your head at that one. <laughs> well, 
actually, I'm shaking my head at the reasoned, thoughtful piece uh, of it, which I think a, a little hard to describe the, the, the kind of pyrotechnics and the incompetence, the travel ban that can't pass muster in a court, the health care bill that flops, the tax reform tomorrow that is only being announced because it's the 100-day anniversary and they have no idea what they're going to do or what deductions they're going to get out to make it happen. But I think the caller makes a very important point, which is true. I think this is the most consolidated, this is the larger, greatest consolidation of conservative power mm -hmm. in Washington uh, in a generation. Now, the Republicans have been similarly in control, but you have never quite had this level of conservative power. That is to say, the House is now very conservative, the Senate is very conservative, the Supreme Court has become uh, very conservative, and Trump seems, as I said, to be morphing into a kind of more conventional Republican. Some of the populism, either because it was just too idiotic to, to manage or because he's backed off from it or because he never believed it in the first place. Who knows? But the result is you're going to get an exercise in, in ultra-conservatism. Now, what we will watch and what I think I would disagree with your caller on is is that what the American people wanted? Is that what coal miners in uh, in West Virginia voted for? Is that what uh, you know the the white working class in Mrs. in uh, Michigan and Ohio voted for to have corporate taxes reduced, even if it if the deficit skyrockets, to have uh, a court that will rule for you know uh, companies rather than workers, uh, to have a, you know a, a justice department that uh, that makes it more and more difficult for uh, blacks to vote in the South. Those things are very much part of this agenda that has been out there for a while. And I think that in some of those issues, particularly economic ones, uh, there is going to be a, a kind of a, a coming to Jesus moment between conservative ideology, which says cut all these government agencies, cut, the, you know, cut taxes for corporations uh, and for most people, which of course means for the rich since they pay most of the taxes, and this white working class that, that at, at the end of the day relies enormously on the government. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, you know, the, if you've seen the analysis, Brian, it is the red states, the states that vote for Trump, that are basically uh, feeding off the, off the federal government. It is the blue states that contribute uh, net tax dollars to the federal government. So, so how that experiment plays itself out will be fascinating to watch. Don in Huntington, Indiana, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Don. Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. So I would say uh, the, the biggest change is that, thanks to President Trump and Steve Bannon, white, white nationalism has been given the legitimacy that it deserves. Oh, boy. Are you saying that it deserves legitimacy? Well, the reality is I'm being facetious, and they can all go straight to hell as far as I'm concerned. Don, thank you very much. But... <laughs> we do have to talk about whether he was being serious or whether, as we know now, he was being facetious. Um, white nationalism has been in the conversation in a way that it just not ha has not been in our country in our lifetimes, I don't think, uh, at least in an explicit way. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, the interesting thing to, to watch uh, has been the rise of anti-Semitism in the last uh, in the last six months, let's say, you know, uh, to me, very puzzling because, you know, I thought America is the one country which had put this demon to rest. There really wasn't significant anti-Semitism in the United States. And what I discovered is two things, by the way. One, which I was, I was somewhat wrong about that. There is a steady stream of anti-Semitism and threats to Jewish communities, to synagogues, which are 
despicable and and but but you know they occur below the radar and you don't see yeah. it as much. But the second is that um, in the last six to nine months there has been a huge uptick in this stuff, and I think it's because when you when you give permission for certain kind of language, when you scratch at people's uh, wounds, when you when you scare them about others, when you tell them that, you know that it's okay to blame um, other people for your problems, a lot of bad stuff comes out. It's like Pandora's box. You may not mean for anti-Semitism to come out specifically, but you've opened up Pandora's box. Right, and it's not just anti-Semitism, but again, I'm thinking of your book, The Future of Freedom, in which you described how democracy is more than elections. It's an independent judiciary and the rule of law. It's strong private sector institutions, including a free press, and its protection of minority rights against the tyranny of the majority. And I think that's what you were most concerned about when you were here on week one, given Trump's anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, even more than anti-Semitism during the campaign. It's still so early, but what's the headline in that area, according to you, so far? Uh, it's just it's a sad story. I mean, that part of it, you know, frankly, the, the campaign was explicitly anti-Mexican, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant. And those communities feel uh, vulnerable. They feel unprotected. Uh, violent language against them has essentially become been normalized. Violence against them has gone up significantly. But in a sense, what I'm more, almost as struck by, so that's the first order effect. That, those are things were pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. And then you had the second order effect where you've had the rise of anti-Semitism. You've had, you know, all these uh, expressions of, uh, of a certain kind of, uh, of nationalism. I don't like that. I, don't, I think it's an unhealthy kind of nationalism because I believe in, uh, you know, patriotism. I think it's a wonderful thing to love this country. But, um, but this is a kind of warped version of it where you blame other people. You blame poor, defenseless minorities, uh, you know, immigrants, gays. But that has, this, you know, the data on this is unmistakable in every area, in every minority community. You have seen, you know, rises in threats, rises in violent language, and rises in actual violence, including, of course, as you know, um, you know, random Indians have been shot because they were seen as either immigrants or potential terrorists or whatever it was. Yes, it's- It's been interesting this half hour to hear how different the take on what has most changed has been from people who support Trump and didn't support Trump. I thank Fareed Zakaria. His column appears once a week in the Washington Post, and his show appears Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock Eastern time on CNN. That's Fareed Zakaria, GPS. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Brian. It's Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of Donald Trump in the White House. Day 96, our final Tuesday night show, my last show in the series, our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes, and our Thursday night host, Carrie Miller, will do their last ones the next two nights. And this public radio station will, of course, continue to cover the new administration and give voice to you in many ways, regardless of your politics. For my final act on Indivisible, we return to our special project with StoryCorps, which for these polarized times has been inviting you to sit down for structured interviews with someone who is different politically from you. Some people are signing up for encounters with strangers across ideological lines. Some of you are doing it with people you know, which is also really important because we know that many family relationships and other close relationships have been frayed by how strongly people have felt for or against Trump and what he stands for. You can sign up 
by yourself or with a partner. Uh, we'll tell you how in a minute. Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps, is back with us. Hi, Dave. Hi, and hi. It's great to hear your voice. And in our remaining minutes here, listeners, who has a story of getting back together with someone you kind of broke up with over the election? Have you refriended anyone you dropped on Facebook or gotten any kind of relationship back on track? face-to-face as things have cooled off for you, maybe, post-election, or have they just stayed too hot for that? Maybe you don't feel you can have that friendship without normalizing Trump or some other thing that stands between you and that person. Tell us a story either way. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. Tell us a story either way. 844-745-TALK. And with Dave and me now, is a married couple who reached out to StoryCorps after hearing Indivisible this month. Sarah Skelly has worked with the United Nations. She's a lecturer of economics, in economics, at a top university, and she voted for Hillary Clinton. Her husband, Darren Skelly, is a rocket scientist with over 25 years of experience in spacecraft design and development. He's worked for NASA. He voted for Trump. So listeners, if you've had the thought that Trump voters are no rocket scientists, sorry, you will have to find a new angle. Sarah and Darren, we really appreciate you coming on the air with us. I know this can make you feel vulnerable, so thank you for your courage and welcome to Indivisible. Thank you. Thank you. So, Sarah, why did you reach out to StoryCorps? This is such a profoundly important topic of, you know, how do we really come together after such a divisive year of, you know, listening to the rhetoric and, and, and really not able to make sense of how, how do we move forward from this? So thank you for doing this. Sure. And... You, may, you told our producer beforehand that the two of you didn't really discuss politics that much before this election. Does that mean in general in your marriage you didn't, or things got too hot in this election season, so you just put it on the shelf? We've known each other for over 10 years, and even though I have a BA, MA, PhD in political science, I am focused on international issues, and domestic politics really has never been an issue for me. Darren and I really never discussed who did you vote for, what is the you know current election kind of climate for you. None of that came up, but when it became just so obvious that you know, I needed to get active. That's when he and I became, you know, very polarized. And you, before we bring Darren in, you said that you um, have some shame about being married to a Trump supporter. Like you don't want your <laughs> your friends to find out. What do you What do you think your friends might think? Talk about that shame, if I'm using the right word. It was more disgust than shame, quite <laughs> candidly. Um, it, he and I were um, very uh, vocal on Facebook, on Twitter, on you know anyone who would listen kind of <laughs> outlets, and it became very clear that he was so vociferous in his opinion. I was so active, you know, I became involved in the Electoral College issue. I, I, you know, really, really focused on we have got to do something to make sure that this person isn't elected. So his views, to me, became so intolerable that 
um, it finally came to a point where we just said, you know, we just can't talk about this. What's that been like for you, Dan? It's had its moments, um, and we have found our our path forward where we just pause and find common ground on common values for our children, our family, and our future, and those types of things. Um, I, I have a, a similar reaction to some of the, the activities and uh, the posts that she had. So it was kind of, wow, it was, it was enlightening, but uh, when we take the politics out of it and find common ground, then that just kind of dissipates, as you would hope. The spirit of Indivisible is to ask what any two people might be learning by listening to each other and their rationales and feelings about the country and about Trump. Is is there something, Darren, first, that maybe you've been learning about Sarah through all this being revealed in your marriage? I've actually learned uh, quite a bit. I've learned um, a lot about her, her, her passions, her desires to step up and make a difference when she believes strongly for a candidate or a position um, she will take action and she she will go out and promote and I I value those characteristics so even though we differ in opinion and philosophy and uh, the ability to accept Trump uh, I support her in her overall strategy any new light shed on the world through hearing her point of view Oh, every day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm married to a brilliant person, and that helps. And she runs in circles that are very different than mine, and she runs in circles that are much more on the making the world a better and brighter place where I work on and exploring other planets. So from the two of our perspectives, I, I get to learn every day from her and, and some of her, her thoughts and philosophies. And before we go on to another couple, we're going to take a break. Um, but then, Dave, I say from StoryCorps, I want to bring you into it a little bit with Darren and, and Sarah and ask a little bit about um, through political differences that you feel very strongly about what you have to do to work on your relationship through that. We have another StoryCorps couple lined up and we're going to take your calls of stories of reconciliation since the election or inability to reconcile. Brian Lehrer on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer with Dave Isay from StoryCorps. StoryCorps is inviting you to sign up to have a dialogue with someone politically different from you. You can do it with someone you know, or they'll match you with a stranger for an all-American StoryCorps encounter across the political divide. Uh, Darren and Sarah are no strangers. They are married and have been 
navigating their political differences since the election campaign season. Uh, listeners will get to some of your stories in a few minutes. Um, Dave, you want to jump in here and model this for us a little bit? You want to work a little of your story core magic with um, Darren and Sarah and show us how it's done? Well, there there is no magic. And I think that what uh, Sarah and Darren were, uh, the, the, what you just heard was really kind of modeling uh, how these interviews can happen. And their, their interview, from what I understand, hasn't actually happened yet. Um, but, you know, I think right. the their formal story course sit down hasn't happened right. yet. You know, the operative word is respect. And actually, the, the, that question about, you know, what, what, what do you admire in, in, in the other person is one of those critical questions. I mean, look, it, 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 you know, as I said, when I came on first three weeks ago and we started this experiment, we've had, you know, 400,000 people do interviews who basically came in to honor someone who they love. And with Indivisible, we're trying this experiment. Uh, Sarah and Darren obviously love each other, but this is about, um, you know, talking through a really difficult um, issue uh, in their lives. And, and with strangers, it's getting to know someone who um, who you disagree with politically and, and the kind of um, uh, uh, kind of existential crisis we're in with the divides in the country. You know, the, 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 what we found is that um, people do want to do this. We've had hundreds of responses. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of questions that Sarah and Darren were answering and, and talking about are the ones that work. You know, the, the, a question like, what do you think of Donald Trump doesn't work, but questions like, you know, what's something you admire about the, you know, about the way I see the world or my political beliefs or mm-hmm. what happened in your life that shaped your political views. Those are very powerful. And the idea of this is to try and, you know, build some social capital uh, during this moment of, of incredible divide. And it's been really exciting working with uh, indivisible listeners to, to, you know, take this one small step towards each other. Remind people how to sign up. Sure. So um, you sign up at listen at storycore.org. Send an email to us. Um, we've got hundreds of, um, of emails. And, you know, last when I came on two weeks ago, uh, we said we wanted to get more conservatives and we did. Thank you. Um, hundreds of people, as I said, have written in. Keep them coming. Um, if we haven't gotten back to you, we will. Um, but we're working on, on setting people up who don't know each other, on doing interviews with people who, who do know each other. There are really two categories of, of interviews that we're seeing. Um, people trying to connect despite their differences, and that's kind of what Kai and Charlie uh, did a couple of weeks ago, and people who found a way oh, to connect co-hosts. despite their differences. Yeah. So, um, uh, Sarah and Darren, before you go, do you think you need to work on your relationship in a different way almost permanently going forward now, now that this political divide has been revealed and the depth of your feeling about it, Sarah? For me, you know, I fought the good fight. I did what I thought I needed to do, and I'm just kind of moving on politically and focused on how I can create change in self, in family, in community, in world, and really just kind of saying, ugh, good luck with that. You know, I am (laughs) just not, I'm not hoping for the best. You know, but I, I just can't mire myself in that negativity. Darren, last word. Uh, I, I don't think there's a need uh, for us to do any major changes in our relationship. Um, looking at this holistically, we have all the same characteristics of our passions for the world, for improvement of the world, a better life for our children, and those things outweigh any political differences. So just finding a way to pause whenever we have a difference of opinion 
and finding the common ground has been working very well. Thanks. You both seem really nice. <laughs> Good luck to both <laughs> yeah. of you. Thank you so yeah. much for, for sharing. I think this really helps other people out there just to hear the two of you, you know, and how you talk to each other and, and about these things because uh, you're not the only ones in this position. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Ryan Thank you. in Washington, Missouri. You're on Indivisible and with David Isay from StoryCorps. Hi, Ryan. Hello, David. How are you? Good. Good. I'm Brian. David's good, too. <laughs> okay. We're all good. <laughs> Sorry about that. Tell us your story about your friend. Okay. Um, well, I guess i got to preface it with I have always been kind of an independent. Um, it's kind of just been in the family. My dad voted for Carter, then he voted for Reagan, then he voted for Pro, and then the Bushes. And we've, we have conservative ideologies, um, since, like, fiscally conservative and socially liberal our entire lives, and we've just been sold out by the Republican Party for the last, I mean, as an ideology, Republicans in general have been sold out by both Bush administrations, and they always broke their promises about lowering taxes. And for my family, that was a very important thing. Um, and uh, so mm-hmm. when we decided to vote independent, or I just decided to vote independent because I want to vote for someone, I, I just didn't believe in the establishment candidates anymore. And I couldn't believe, and like the last election, I didn't even vote because my candidate was Ron Paul, and he was eliminated from the spectrum altogether by the media. So I so, so just, I need, and that's, uh, yeah, I need okay. to move you to what happened with your friend, just for okay, time. He, he started calling me a racist and believing that anyone, or the majority of anyone who would vote for Trump has to be a racist, and there couldn't be any other way around it. And that was just his, his belief. I don't think he grew up or knew too many white people. I was probably one of the few that he's met or actually been friends with in his time. And um, him being from New York, New Jersey, I'm from Missouri. I've been exposed to, you know, lots of white people in Missouri. And I don't know too many racists, to tell you the truth. And um, there are some, of course, there's some bigots in every community. But it's definitely not the majority, mm-hmm. and um, not anyone that I know, at least. So I just can't, it just it was really hard for me to understand how he could believe that I, someone he's known for a long time, and who's pretty much, <laughs> I'm friends with everyone, I just treat my neighbor as myself. So and, what's, um, what's the, I'll ask you a two-part question. Sure. What's the state of your friendship today, and do you get, trying to put myself in his shoes that so oh, many totally. people so many people feel not just like they disagree with Trump on some issues sure. but dehumanized and threatened threatened by the way he feels licensed to talk about Mexicans and Muslims and women and black people and Seventh Day Adventists and Ted Cruz's wife <laughs> and I could go on yeah and uh, I kind of felt um, that when people would go on those tangents you could pick, pull something up about Hillary like she called black people super predators, black men, and just the policies of the Clintons back in the 90s, which were also continuations of Republican policies, mind you. So it wasn't, I just wasn't buying that she was all that she was built up to be. I mean, her mentor in politics was Robert Byrd, Grand Dragon in the Klan. So like, and when people tried to call it the Trump part of the Klan, it was hard for me to buy that. Right. When, yeah, I, yeah Dave, Dave I say go ahead, and, and, and I, I'm just going to acknowledge the Clinton supporters out there saying, <clears throat> no, that was for a brief second in her youth, and there's no equivalency there. But, David, go ahead. So, would, do you think you would be comfortable doing a StoryCorps interview with this friend? 
Um, I don't think he would be comfortable. Once you ask. I would be. I would definitely yeah. be. Well, once you, once you see, you know, it, it, you, you never know. I mean, part of what, what happens in a StoryCorps interview, every interview goes to the Library of Congress, and, you know, people realize they're speaking to the future and kind of bring their better angels into a session. But I think, I think you know, it's important that you guys talk, um, if sure. you can. I think it would be great and great to help us test this out. And, again, not focus on the specific um, questions about politics, but just, you know, questions like, um, yeah, as, as Brian was just saying to you, like if you can see, um, if you can understand a little bit about where, where your friend is coming from and, and maybe he can understand a little bit about where you're coming from. And, you know, I think part of the problem of what's going on in this country uh, is that we do ascribe kind of inhuman qualities to the people who don't agree with us politically. And um, that's kind of the little, the, the, the kind of small step that we're trying to take with, um, with, with this uh, undertaking. And Ryan, I really appreciate your courage in calling up and airing some of that. Uh, and we got to go for time, but thank you. If you want to Give it a shot. If you can recruit your friend to do it with you, just send that email to listen at storycorps.org, listen at storycorps.org. Let's meet another StoryCorps pair who did sign up together, Cindy Brookshire, who works at the Selma, North Carolina Visitor Center, population 6,000, I'm told. She's liberal and white. She did a StoryCorps session with her friend Eric Jackson, who is conservative and black. Now, since the election... Eric has been calling Cindy every Thursday morning to talk about what's going on in the country. Here is two minutes of their already recorded StoryCorps conversation. It's usually about 10 o'clock. And the and, phone rings. And I and, say, Selma Visitor Center. And I'll say, could you tell me if there are any local book burnings around? <laughs> I would do some right-wing thing to make her laugh. It's my Thursday ritual. I didn't realize you were a conservative until after the election, because I remember offering you a ride to go vote early, but I didn't realize you were voting Republican. And then I had remorse. I was like, I offered him a ride to vote. But conservatism is not a dirty word. Liberalism is not a dirty word. I can respect liberal all day long. What I have a hard time swallowing is extremism on both sides. But someone who is a liberal... I can learn from it. Why do you think it's easy for us to talk to each other about politics when we're so different? Because I think we respect each other. I respect your experience. I respect your opinions. See, I feel like I can talk to you because you don't dismiss me as a liberal. After the election, I panicked, and you were the one that talked me down. And it would seem like I would go to my liberal friends to be comforted, but I went to a conservative. And I said, honey, it's going to be okay. We've had bigger bumps than Donald Trump. But I still know a lot of people that are still in that fetal position. But you've... I marched on down to the Democratic... I've joined the Democratic Party. I'm filling out postcards to welcome new members and everything. And you haven't turned away from me because of... No, that's your bailiwick. I, I go for it. The thing is, if his becoming president has spurred you to action, then this country will be fine. Because that's what this country was founded on. And I think that's why we will always be okay. Uh-huh. And with us now live on Indivisible are Cindy Brookshire. And I'm, am I saying it right? Is it Brookshire? Yes, it's Brookshire. Thank you, Brian and Dave, for the StoryCorps experience. We really enjoyed it. And Eric Jackson. Thank you, thank you. Hi, Eric. Thanks Hello. for doing this. Thanks, Selma. 
I'm looking at you on Facebook. I love all this new technology. I'm on a cell phone looking at you listening to myself, so I think this is me. I always forget that we're <laughs> streaming video on Facebook Live. I hope I'm not doing anything embarrassing. Cindy, Cindy, you took him to vote not realizing he was for Trump? Well, I offered him a ride. He went with someone else. But afterwards, when I was, like, really down, I thought, I can't believe I offered him a ride. (laughs) You profiled him, didn't you? Yeah. But I think we've really bonded over the StoryCorps experience. And when we left our session in Raleigh, Eric and I decided we wanted to do some community face-to-face dialogues like I did up in Virginia. I lived there for 30 years, and I did something called study circles. We call them neighborhood improvement circles, where you bring 15 diverse people together for six sessions, and then you do an action plan. And for him and me talking every Thursday, it was like the StoryCorps thing was our action plan, and now we're going to do something, a project. And we just have like two minutes, but Eric, um, how'd you wind up a Trump voter? Well, as I told Cindy, as I told uh, StoryCorps, I have always been a conservative, Republican here and there, but a conservative. And, uh, you know, I, being black, that you know, black and conservative, okay, but I have never, I don't think uh, people realize that uh, conservatives do are black, and I have never wanted to be boxed in like, oh, you're black, so you're supposed to vote this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is one thing that, that Donald Trump uh, presidency is going to bring out. A lot of people that were necessarily boxed into one group uh Voted for him, and I think that that that's one of the great things about this country. You, you, we what? have the right to vote, and I know, and a lot of members of my family who may be listening were very disappointed. But uh, I think individuality is, is a great thing, and and tell us tell us what you would tell us what you would recommend. Uh, conscience, vote for Hillary Clinton. What because, would you uh, What would you recommend this, about? This I don't think I can I will hear say me. This, in 2008 and 2012, I voted for Barack Obama. What would you recommend about so, the StoryCorps uh, experience? I think I'm going to have to fade down Eric's line because he can't hear me and we're going to run out of time. I apologize. Cindy, what would you recommend about the StoryCorps experience to other folks? I would say uh, just calm down before you go in and and you give that list of questions. We actually practiced and we picked out three questions that we felt very passionate about. And then you just relax. Uh, The facilitator gave us water and we just, we became ourselves in a dark, it was like a darkened room. So just be yourselves. Dave, they're so friendly with each other. This must have been (laughs) an easy one compared to what you might run up against. One of the things that I really think that StoryCorps, the, the, uh, after the postmortem, is I think you're going to see uh, people that may have look at each other and say, you know what, you're not the monster that I thought you were. Mm-hmm. You're not the gremlin under the bed. You're not the troll at the bridge. And I think it's a matter of mutual respect. We that is such, react. such a good way to end. Cindy yep. and Eric, thank you both very much. Dave, you got thank 15 you. seconds for a last word here. Use them wisely. Well, if, if, if people should listen to this week's StoryCorps podcast where we play a bunch of stories like this, we talk about the indivisible, 
um, partnership. You know, the, I, this is a lot about hope. StoryCorps is about hope. Indivisible is about hope. The greatest threat to our democracy, the one with the most dangerous consequences, is hopelessness. Yeah. Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation said democracy can't breathe without hope. David, so th- we've been honored to work with you, and congratulations on your last show. Thank you very much, and congratulations on launching this post-indivisible project. Dave, I say from StoryCorps, listeners, if you're interested, sign up by sending them an email to listen at StoryCorps. Dot org, and you can download the StoryCorps podcast to hear all the conversations, too. Tomorrow on Indivisible, our Wednesday host, Charlie Sykes, continues the final week of this first 100-day series with a visit from some of his earliest guests to look back on what's happened since they last spoke, plus 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenholt of The Washington Post and more of your calls. And I want to take a moment to say thanks to everyone who joined us tonight and called in during these 14 Tuesday nights of the first 100 days. So many of you, regardless of your politics, have come to listen as well as talk and keep our country a little more indivisible. And I want to thank our behind-the-scenes team. Your calls have been screened by Ursula Summer, Sam Anderson, Bajan Raanchi, Justine Daum, and Sarah Kari, Bianca Canero, runs social media for Indivisible, Jason Isaac, and Debbie Daughtry are the wonderful sound engineers. Much adulation for Zoe Ajoule, the Tuesday night producer, and Megan Ryan, Indivisible's executive producer. I'm Brian Lehrer. You can hear me on my usual Monday through Friday call-in show where we talk about all these issues. It's The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC Radio in New York or WNYC.org from any internet connection anywhere. My show airs weekdays from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time. So talk to some of you then, I hope, and stay indivisible, America. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloff Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.